This time I invite you to open your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 40. If you're using a pew Bible, that can be found on page 600, Isaiah 40, and I'll be reading verses 12 through 17. Hear the word of the Lord. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens with a span, enclosed the dust of the earth in a measure and weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance? Who has measured the spirit of the Lord or what man shows him his counsel? Whom did he consult and whom made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice and taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are accounted as the dust on the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastlands like fine dust. Lebanon would not suffice for fuel, nor are its beasts enough for burnt offering. All the nations are as nothing before him, and they are accounted by him as less than nothing and emptiness. This is God's word. With the opening words of Isaiah chapter 40, we're confronted with this great message of comfort from God to his people. It almost seems too good to be true. To those who would first hear these words in Isaiah's day, it would seem too good to be true. To those who would be carried off into exile in a hundred years' time, it would seem as if those words were empty words. To those who came back from exile, back to the holy city, back to Jerusalem and Judah, and tried to rebuild their lives, first under Persian rule, then under Greek rule, then under Roman rule, it would almost appear as if these words would never come true. And to God's people, in all the centuries since then, who have found themselves overtaken by calamities of one kind or another, or by circumstances which seem to demonstrate that God is himself silent, no longer speaking to his people, or distant, no longer interested in his people, or to people who are suffering the consequences of their own error or their own evil. These words... Comfort, my people, says your God, may seem to be no more than the steam from the kettle or the early morning mist, intangible, empty, insignificant, and meaningless. And yet it is these words that shape this entire chapter. Two questions really arise in the minds of God's people especially when things go wrong in their lives. Two questions. Does God even want to rescue me? Does he want to do that? Given the persistent rebellion of his people, given my persistent rebellion against him, does he want to save me? And the answer in verses 1 to 11 is, yes, God wants to do that. That's his will to do that. That's the message that he has delivered to his messengers that he wants to pardon, he wants to restore, and he wants to bring salvation. The gospel 
has always been the only comfort of the believer in life and in death. From Adam and Eve, when they first heard it announced to them in Genesis 3.15 at the gates of the Garden of Eden, it has only ever been the gospel that comforts the hearts and minds of the believer. But given that God wants to help, the second question that is answered in chapter 40 verses 12 and following is, can God deliver his people? It's one thing for him to have the desire to do so, to act on our behalf. It is another thing for him to have the power to do so. And from verses 12 to the end of the chapter, we are having argued with, by God with us the fact that God can and will act for the salvation of his people. He has the will to, he has the power to. Those are the two great themes of this chapter. And so as we saw last time and glanced at again in verse 12, we see the almighty power of God. As there in verse 12, God challenges. He challenges the universe. He says to the universe, present any other power, any other personality in the universe who has any power to do what I have done. As he talks about marking out the heavens and enclosing the dust of the earth, you can see that he's comprehending here the whole universe, the sky, the universe out there, and the dust, the earth under our feet. Everything is comprehended there in that picture of the universe and God's making of the universe. And the answer to the questions that are asked in verse 12 is the answer, no one. There is no one like our God. He is unique and he is omnipotent. He is the incomparable master and maker of all things. Here we have the capacity of the creator, God, so massive that to use euphemisms that we are familiar with, he could hold the oceans of the earth in the palm of his hand. He could go about the business of creation like a master builder, calculating the dimensions of the task and weighing the raw materials on his kitchen scales. So small a thing is it to God to make the universe in which we live. And in verse 12, God is challenging his own people who are doubting his promises. He is encouraging them to consider his majesty and his glory. To think about the sheer autonomy of God, which is distinct from us. We are not autonomous, though we like to think we are. God is divinely autonomous. He is omnicompetent and he is omnipotent. If you think for a moment, what is it? What must it be to be God? It means at least this, that he has unlimited power, that he may exercise his own will as he pleases, independent of any influence and overcoming any impediment. He may do what he chooses, as he chooses, when he chooses. We think of powers, we think of personalities in the world today, and we say when it comes to power and personality, there is no one like our God. But you see, raw power, which is what we looked at last time, raw power by itself can be exercised badly. 
You see this in leaderships. You see this in the political system. You see it in the church. You see raw power exercised badly. For power in the Bible has to be linked to another thing, which we're going to look at this morning. The almighty power of God nestles in our text, nestles in the nest of the infinite wisdom of God. So we move from the almighty power of God in verse 12 to the infinite wisdom of God in verse 13 and 14. You can see that there is a shift. He who measured out the universe cannot himself be measured by anything in the universe or anyone in the universe. Who has measured the spirit of the Lord? Now you need to see the contrast between those two verses. We've just been told that God himself measured and marked out the created universe, emphasizing the massive size and scale and scope and power of God. But we here we're told in verse 13 that it is impossible to measure or comprehend him. He who measured and marked out creation can himself not be measured or marked out by anything or anyone in creation. You get the, the, thought, the theme here. That means that no one can comprehend God. Therefore, no one can control God. What you can comprehend with your mind, you may be enabled to control with your will. God is not comprehensible to our mind, and he is not controllable by us as his creatures. Now, this is an important thing for us to grasp. John Calvin, in his commentary, says, you know, carnal sense wickedly limits the power of God to human means. It limits the power of God to human means. We, we judge his power by what we can do. And it limits his inscrutable counsels, that is, his wisdom, to human reasonings. We, we want to know by our reason how this, that, or the other thing that God has done have come into being. And Calvin says, we wickedly do that because we try to comprehend God. We want to fit God into our shape and size. And that we are forbidden to do. Who has measured the spirit of the Lord? And what man shows him his counsel? That is, who advises God? What human being, what created being advises God on what he's doing? That's certainly one way of translating that phrase. The other way of translating that phrase is uh, to see the the Hebrew poetic flow here, in which case the Lord God is the subject of the first part of the verse and would perhaps be the subject of the second part of the verse, which would then read, and with what man or with whom has he shared his plans? Has he shown his plans? Professor Brevard Childs takes that view. And the whole emphasis therefore would be this. 
Who can comprehend the Spirit of God? Therefore, who can penetrate in order to understand the counsels, the plans of God? And that very well may be the way in which we're to understand the verse. Either way, you notice the focus is on the Spirit, the executive of the Godhead. Throughout the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit is the one who both knows and implements the work and plans of God, the mind of God. So in Genesis chapter 1, here's your, here's your template for the rest of Scripture. Genesis chapter 1, verse 2. In the beginning, God creates the heavens and the earth. Verse 2, the Holy Spirit of God is hovering over that recently made but unformed creation. What's he waiting for? Hovering, waiting for. He is waiting for the will and word of God to be spoken. The will and work of God, word of God is spoken and the Spirit sets about the task of bringing order out of chaos, life where there is not life and so on. The Spirit is the executive of the Godhead. Psalm 33. He is the agent of the expressed will of God. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made. And by his spirit, the spirit of his mouth, all their host. Now you take the spirit then. And uh, what you must understand is that no one can grasp or comprehend what the spirit of God grasps and comprehends. He is there and is alone there. In the work of creation, in verse 12, he alone has the wisdom needed for the work, in verse 13. Now in verse 14, this is repeated with a slightly different emphasis. So far, God demonstrates his power in creation, in the work of creation, and in the wisdom behind the work of creation. But this chapter, you see, is not just about creation. This chapter has, from the very beginning, been about redemption or salvation. It's been about the comfort of God, in which God acts on behalf of a disobedient and rebellious people and administers a great salvation. He pardons their iniquity. He ends the the alienation between himself, God, and humanity. He ends the alienation. He brings an end to the warfare that exists between man and God and God and man. And so in verse 14, we find this emphasis on salvation in a number of ways. Let me read it to you again. Whom did he consult? Who made him understand? Who taught him, that is God, the path of justice, taught him knowledge, showed him the way of understanding or wisdom. Those features of justice, knowledge, and understanding are in the book of Isaiah always reference to God's salvation. Always. They will be the characteristics of the bringer of salvation, who's called the servant of the Lord, the Savior. Uh, He is the one who will be chosen to be the Savior. He is the one who will bring justice or righteousness. That word justice is always saving justice to the world. 
And so these are references in verse 14 to the gospel. There is a wisdom that underlies creation in verse, in verse 13, uh, in, in verse 12, 13. And there is a wisdom that underlies the gospel, the good news message that has just been proclaimed. What lies behind the announcement of this good news to the world where justice will be done and God will at the same time be able to justify sinners? There's another element here that underlines the fact that this verse is about salvation this time. Because the Holy Spirit in Isaiah is always the instrument or agent when it comes to salvation. In chapter 42, for example, when the servant comes, the, the saving servant comes, he will be full of the Holy Spirit. He will have the Spirit of God without measure. Let me read it to you. In Isaiah 42, verse 1, Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my elect one, the one I have chosen, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice, righteousness, justification to the nations. No one can fathom the spirit. No one can plumb the depths of God except the spirit. No one by themselves is able to comprehend the saving plan of God. Now when you look at the New Testament, is the position that I've just explained feasible from a New Testament perspective? You must ask that question. And I must answer it in the affirmative that it certainly is. In Colossians chapter 2, for example, we find this very language being used about Christ who is the sum of the wisdom and knowledge of God because he has the Spirit in full measure. We find the riches of full assurance and understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. So there is something hidden, you see, in Colossians 2. There is a mystery which people did not see clearly in the Old Covenant, which is hidden to people by nature so that they cannot see it. And what is hidden, this mystery that is hidden to people by nature, is Christ in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. That's what Paul is reflecting on in the end of Romans chapter 11 in that great doxology. You remember when he talks about the depths of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. Wherever you see that phrase concerning the depths, you are thinking in creational categories of the depths of God's being, the depths of God's mind and God's transcendence. In the Old Testament, the depths of the sea and the depths of the earth could not be measured by human beings at that time. And they were used as illustrations, just as you cannot measure the depths of the sea and you cannot measure the depths of the earth, was the analogy, so you cannot measure the depths of God, that is the depths of God's mind, what is in his heart, what lies deep within his nature. In Job 28, the way to wisdom 
is described in terms of searching the depths. The metaphor of depths is also used of the inner thoughts and purposes of someone. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, and I'm going to look at that in a moment. If you want to look that up, if you are ambidextrous and you can use two hands uh, and multitask, turn to page 952 in a moment. But there there's a reference to the depths of God. The Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. So you understand that what we're being told here in Isaiah 40 is that the Spirit of God knows the depths of God. We can't comprehend the Spirit, but the Spirit comprehends God. He grasps the deep things in the mind of God. Now in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, the apostle quotes from these verses, and that's why I'm taking you there this morning. It's important, I think, that we see that Paul, in his use of this verse, underlines this gospel application of this verse to us. In, in that chapter, the apostle is using the idea of wisdom. He's, he, he is speaking to a world. He, he's writing to Corinth, Corinth in Greece, uh, Surrounded as they were in, in Greece with the philosophies of ancient Greece. And with that, the great rhetoricians of the age who were able to speak boldly and clearly and in a way that was beautiful to the ear about the great cut and thrust of philosophical ideas. Paul is working in that kind of environment. And in the opening of chapter two of First Corinthians, the apostle tells us how it was he came to Corinth. Just as he'd gone to Athens, you remember when he was in Athens, people said, the, the Athenian philosophers said about the apostle Paul, who is this babbler, they said, literally seed picker. Some little, little bird, you know, picks up a seed here and a little seed there. He is a man who has no coherent thought. He has no great idea. He is a little man with a little idea. You're doing a little task. And they despised him. And it was the same when he went to Corinth. He says, when we came to Corinth, my dear brothers, we did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with the high rhetoric of the age, the lofty speech or wisdom of this world. We, we didn't come thinking that men and women who had more technical knowledge or technical expertise or greater wisdom would somehow or other twig on to the good news of the gospel easier and quicker than the ordinary person who had no education whatsoever. We did not come using the techniques and the language of the rhetoric of the philosophers. Instead, he said, we come, came to you with weakness and fear and much trembling and our speech and our message were not in plausible words of human wisdom but in demonstration of the Spirit and power. Paul's conscious, you see, that this Christian message that we preach, as he said in chapter 1, is a message that is to the Greek philosophers' foolishness. To the wise of this present age, it seems like a triviality. It seems like a small thing, an insignificant thing. 
a despised thing. Paul's conscious that's the way the world sees it. Imagine, imagine yourself living in that first century world, wherever you lived in the known world of that time was under Roman rule. There you were confronted in that world with the highest, the highest and greatest philosophies of the age handed down through the Greek, through the Greeks to the people of that age. There you were faced with the massive military might of the Roman Empire. The Greco-Roman world, great might, great wisdom. And wherever you went, outside the cities and towns, if you were going on your vacation, you wouldn't have a car to go, you'd probably walk for several days. And as you went through each town, there in the, outside the city walls or outside the town limits, you would be walking along a road. And on either side of you, there would be crosses with victims pinned there. Perhaps the buzzards picking their skin off, left to die. It was a horrific sight. You as a Roman citizen would feel pretty safe and pretty proud that as a Roman citizen they couldn't do that to you. It was only the riffraff. It was only the scum of the earth that ended up there on those crosses. Here is Paul. He comes to these places and he preaches what? He preaches a crucified God. Can you imagine? Can you imagine how they despised it? Not only did he not use the rhetoric, the techniques of rhetoric, but also in the very message that he preached. He refused to preach anything other than Christ crucified. Now Paul, as he writes to these people at, Cor at Corinth, says, but we don't want you to, be mis to misunderstand this. We did not come using the wisdom of this present age, but that does not mean that we did not come with wisdom. Look what he says. Look at verse 6. Among the mature, he says, we impart wisdom. Although it is not, he says, a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age. That is the great people of this age. Not just the rulers who were kings or princes, but, but the great people. The people with influence and power of this age, which is doomed to pass away. He, con he contrasts the wisdom that he brought with the wisdom that was around in the society. In fact, this is what we read in verse 7. I'm going to, I'm going to use uh, Greg Beale's translation of this. We declare God's wisdom hidden in a mystery which God destined for our glory before the ages. So he's contrasting a wisdom of this age. Will you notice in verse 8 that none of the great men and women of this age grasp this? Or understood this. For if they had done so, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. He is saying that there are people, there are people in the world who cannot grasp the wisdom of God. They cannot get their minds around it. And it is understanding the wisdom of God is not a matter of education. It is not a matter of your social standing. It's not a matter of how many degrees you've accumulated in your life or where you've studied or whether you have a sharp and acute mind. But knowing the wisdom of God is like this. It's like a professor that once came to my church. I won't identify the church. But he was a professor in one of the great universities of the United Kingdom. And he, 
went to a church plant because he said he couldn't understand what was being said from the pulpit. Maybe you identify with that, but he actually understood the accent. So it wasn't the accent. (laughs) Meanwhile, there's a man who used to come. He and his wife would sit in the front row. He had left school at 14. He couldn't write. He struggled to read. He'd been involved in the gangs in that area. He was a hard man to beat hard men. People were scared of him when he walked down the street because they remembered his past. And he and his wife would sit. He would drink in every word. He understood every word. His wife would take the notes and they'd go home at lunchtime and they'd go over the notes. What was the difference between those two men? Massive social and educational differences. But one had the spirit of God and one didn't. That's the reality. Paul goes on to explain it uh, further on in this passage. If you look at verse 14, he says, The natural person, that is the way you are by nature, does not accept the things of the spirit of God, for they are folly to him. He is not able to understand them because... They are spiritually discerned. You need the Holy Spirit to understand spiritual truths. Now, reflecting back in Isaiah. Isaiah has talked about the Spirit of God. The Spirit of God, of course, is God in himself. His, his essence, his very being. Only the spirit of a person knows, for example, what they really feel deep inside. You can think you know, but you don't know. You can think you know what's in someone's mind, but you don't know what's in someone's mind. You're only guessing, judging, perhaps. Only the spirit of a man knows what is in a man. But the spirit of God, you see, is that inner awareness God has of himself and of his own mind. So, in the Hebrew, the word spirit... There in Isaiah chapter 40 is translated in the Greek version, in the Septuagint version of the Old Testament, by the word mind. Because the spirit of a man knows the mind of a man. The spirit of a man is his self-consciousness. The spirit of God is conscious of the mind of God. Now, have that in your mind then. When we are told this, look at the depths of this mystery that I've just said. The gospel is a mystery, hidden. There are indicators of it. There are suggestions of it in the Old Testament. But the way it actually worked out, the way it actually worked out in reality was different from what people expected. Here we are on Palm Sunday. What happened back then that first Palm Sunday was this. Jesus rides into Jerusalem like a king. He is welcomed like a king. They take off their robes and they get their palm branches and they throw them before him and he rides on his donkey like a king come on a peace mission to his royal city. And there on that day the people of Jerusalem and Judah had a choice to make. Would they receive welcome, adore, love, follow their king, God's Messiah? That day, they decided to welcome him as the Messiah of God. Blessed is the son of David, the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Alleluia. And I started the service by quoting from Psalm 80. 
which they were reciting. You've come to save us. You've come to deliver us. Hosanna, save us. Deliver us. And by the end of that week, you know, as they saw him arrested, as they saw him publicly humiliated, as they saw him heading in the direction of being crucified, dead, and buried, they rejected their Messiah. I've quoted before a girl in London, King's College London, saying in a group that I was lecturing to, Jesus was the Messiah we never wanted. They wanted the way he was on Pam Sunday. They did not want him the way he was on Good Friday. That's the reality. But Good Friday is this mystery, hidden, God's wisdom, hidden in a mystery, but was destined for our glory before the ages. And that's what's been revealed. Now look at verse 10. These things, what no eye has seen, what no ear heard, what no heart of man ever imagined, the things that God had prepared for those who love him, these things God has revealed to us, that's to the apostles, through the Spirit, for the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. Remember I said, the depths of God are the very thoughts of God's heart. They are the feelings of God's heart. They are the inner consciousness of God's own plans and purposes. The Spirit knows those effortlessly. He is engaged with those all the time. And what He knows, He revealed in Christ to the apostles. That's the message Paul is preaching. This that was revealed to him. And not only do the apostles have it and have that revelation, but, but those who know the Lord Jesus have received the Spirit too. Look at verse 12. We have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. So you go back to Isaiah chapter 40 and there you have the answer to the question who has measured the spirit of God who has uh, who has grasped the justice and knowledge and the understanding that God has and the answer there is no one but here the apostle Paul is saying something has happened in salvation history something has happened in the history of the world that changes that for some, the Messiah has come. The Spirit has come. And those who have the Messiah understand the things freely given us by God. You notice he quotes from Isaiah in verse 16. Who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? Answer, no one. But not anymore. Not anymore. Look at the end of the verse. We have the mind of Christ. 
the rulers of this world crucified the Lord of glory. They couldn't recognize that the Lord of glory, who could measure the oceans in the palm of his hand and calculate out the universe with the span of his hand, and who could cook up the ingredients on his kitchen stove as effortlessly as that, they couldn't grasp that the Lord of glory, who played with planets and stars and forces when he created the universe, was the little baby who played on the floor of Mary and Joseph's house with his toys, who ran around with the other boys and girls playing in the backyard, could be taken hold of and whipped and ridiculed and mocked and crucified, the Lord of glory. You don't understand that without the Holy Spirit's help. You don't get that without the work of the Holy Spirit in your heart bringing you to Christ. The change from Lord to Christ indicates to us that Paul sees himself and us as living in the days of the fulfillment. The mind of Christ is not exercised or found by thinking about nothing. The mind of Christ is grasped when we look at the cross. In this infinite wisdom of God, God has taken something so insignificant and dreadful as the cross and made it the very door to heaven. The very way to paradise the very thing that reconciles us to God so the question of Isaiah 40 is does God want to help yes he has sent out his speakers all over the world saying comfort comfort my people your iniquity is pardoned and he has pointed to the universe itself and said you see that my power to make and the wisdom behind it, my power to save, has my own wisdom behind it too. That in the foolishness of the cross, and in the foolishness of the preaching of the cross, lies your only hope, your only hope of salvation. And so it doesn't matter how much you know or how little you know. Let me tell you, we are all on level ground when it comes to the cross. Nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to thy cross I cling. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would write on our minds and hearts this morning this great mystery. The wisdom of God hidden in a mystery now revealed by the Spirit to the apostles. And now... in through the apostles now to us by the help of the Spirit illuminating our minds to grasp and to hold it fast. And as we come to this table to take bread and wine, that through a torn body, through the outpoured blood of our Savior, we have found the way to paradise at last. Help us to 
enjoy that and to celebrate that together. In Jesus' strong name we pray. Amen.